Welcome to Beyond Texas. I'm W.F. Strong, your host, your storyteller, your rhapsode. That's an interesting tradition back from the Greeks. It goes back to the time of the Greeks where rhapsodes were storytellers who would go from city to city telling stories that people would gather in the town square to listen to or the plaza. Homer was a rhapsode, a blind rhapsode, and he would go from town to town telling the story of the Battle of Troy. He and his type were called rhapsodes. I, I like the I like to think of the modern rappers as rhapsodes of sorts because many of them tell stories within the rhythm and rhyme of their songs. And uh, the rhapsodes were like that. They would carry staffs or sticks and they would kind of beat out a rhythm as they went along telling, reciting their epic poems. I have to stick to the core content. I don't have the talent to do all of that, so I just try to tell the story in the raw, so to speak. I also wanted to mention that if you would like to support this podcast, you can do it on patreon.com. You just search for Beyond Texas, and it tells you how to individually underwrite this podcast. Appreciate your support. Now on to the last segment on Oscar Wilde. Up until his late 30s, Oscar Wilde was living the dream. He was a toast of London. His life was filled with tours, with triumphs on the literary and dramatic scene. He became absolutely a celebrated man of letters. There was no one sought after more as a dinner guest than Oscar Wilde. He was the ideal conversationalist, encyclopedic in knowledge and skilled at sharing his erudition with acerbic wit and quotable quotes at every turn. He married, had two children, both boys, and was most famous then as a playwright. He wrote The Importance of Being Earnest and Salome, and his most famous novel, A Picture of Dorian Gray, which today is his best-known work. Well, in the midst of this celebrated fame, he had a secret. He was gay, which was illegal in England then. In fact, it was illegal until the 1960s. It was in his late 30s that he met Lord Alfred Douglas, a charming, erudite, promising young poet at Oxford who was 16 years younger than Oscar, about 20, when he met him. They became fast friends. They traveled together and lovers, though Wilde described their relationship as platonic, like that of David and Jonathan in the Bible. And it may have started out that way, but that's not how it, that's not how it progressed. Lord Alfred's father, the Marquess of Queensbury, was appalled and embarrassed, and he left his calling card on the public board at the club, of which Oscar was also a member. His calling card was addressed to Oscar Wilde, and it had this inscription, Posing Sodomite. This was public, and this was immediately a scandal. Lord Alfred begged Oscar to sue his father for libel. Well, against the advice of friends like George Bernard Shaw, Oscar did so, and that was his undoing. By the third day of the trial, it had gone so badly for Oscar that he had his lawyer drop the charges, but he had inadvertently proved his guilt as a homosexual in that trial, and then the state turned around and brought charges against him for gross indecency, which was the charge typically brought against gay men in those times. So Oscar was convicted, really, by the content of his literary works. They essentially put his novel and poems on trial. 
A picture of Dorian Gray was attacked in court as an immoral book and the very means by which he seduced Lord Alfred. The transcripts of the trial, they make for very good reading. I learned a term there that Oscar repeats a few times. He refers to the narrow-minded as people who are incalculably stupid. It's a handy label to have at the ready whenever you need it. Well, Oscar was convicted of the charge of gross indecency, really for being gay, and was sentenced to two years of hard labor. I think the authorities particularly wanted to make an example of Oscar Wilde since he was a celebrity, and they were particularly tough on him. I'll share with you what the prosecuting attorney had to say about a letter that was found that was written from Oscar to Lord Alfred, and this letter was damning by the standards of the time. He says, I contend that such a letter found in the possession of a woman from a man would be open but to one interpretation. How much worse is that inference to be drawn when such a letter is written from one man to another? It has been attempted to show that this was a prose poem, a sonnet, a lovely thing, which I suppose we are too low to appreciate. Gentlemen, let us thank God, if it is so, that we do not appreciate things of this sort. It is lower than the beast's. If that letter had been seen by any right-minded man, it would have been looked upon as evidence of a guilty passion, and you men of pride, reason, and honor are tried to be put off with this story of the prose poem, of the sonnet, of the lovely thing. Now, gentlemen, I have been through the whole of this case. I have pointed out to you its strength, and I have to ask you to do your duty in regard to it. I have already dealt with that as I think unfortunate appeal which my learned friend made as to the literary past or literary future of Oscar Wilde. With that, we have in this case nothing whatever to do. He has a right to be acquitted if you believe him to be an innocent man, be his lot high or low. But if, gentlemen, in your consciences you believe that he is guilty of these charges, well then, you have only one consideration, and that is to follow closely the obligation of the oath which has been laid upon you, guilty as charged, two years in prison. And so he was judged guilty by the jury, and the judge gave him the maximum penalty, two years, solitary confinement. Now here, I will let Oscar take over. I've developed a kind of soliloquy based upon things that he wrote and said at that time, and his memories of prison later, and I will package them into this kind of soliloquy and let him talk to you directly. Welcome to Solitary Confinement. This is my cell. Eight by eight. And this here is my bed, a, a wood plank bed. It provides all the insomnia you can stand, no blankets. I get no newspapers here, nothing to keep up with the currents of the world. They allow me no books either. I get no paper to write upon and no pen with which to write anyway. I can have no visitors at all. I was a man whose life was one long conversation, and now nothing. Even my boys, my, my fine, fine boys, have been taken from me. I cannot see them even after I get out of prison. The state fears that I will somehow corrupt them. If I could only have a cigarette, 
I would at least have something to do. I have nothing to stave off the seductions of insanity, and in this nothingness I am told to remain silent. I can do nothing but think of the past. I think of June afternoons in London parks, the, the silver sunlight shimmering across the grass and dancing through the leaves of the trees. I think of that Wordsworth poem about wandering lonely as a cloud and the breeze in the trees. I don't know why I constantly see that summer afternoon. I suppose it is freedom. I think of how things were not so long ago. I was a man who lived as the symbol of his age, the icon of his time. Most men do not get to know their legend as they live it. But I was blessed by the gods. Everything I had touched turned to treasure. I had best-selling books like Dorian Gray, read by tens of thousands, and plays like The Importance of Being Earnest, running simultaneously in the capitals of Europe and in New York. I was recognized as an expert on as an expert on art and the history of the Renaissance and the Golden Age of Greece. Every day, it seemed, I was in the social pages. Ah, uh, journalism is such a game. That is our problem in England, you see. Journalism is unreadable and literature is not read. That is why we have unjust laws that put me where I am. I would offer to any person what I want for myself, the right to choose my life according to the things that feed my soul, according to my preferences. Why should some men walk free because they were born to love green and others go to prison because they love blue? It is a matter of personal taste and preference. Personal liberty should extend to protecting one's preferences without governmental interference, but... Whatever horrors the state has brought upon me, I must admit that I have brought more upon myself. No man falls without his own aid. I knew the age I lived in. I knew the mores, and like a Shakespearean character through my own hubris and pride, I have brought myself low to where I am. When they took me from court to jail, they put the handcuffs on me and they led me with ten other prisoners in the prison clothes with arrows on them, out into the yard in front of the courts to await transport to the penitentiary. A crowd gathered to mock us, to laugh and jeer, and as the best known among them, I got more attention than the others. I thought how I had so quickly gone from eternal fame to eternal infamy. Actually, a short journey. I have been called a lord of literature, a wizard of words, but there are no words to describe the shame I felt at that moment. I thought, you see, of my poor parents who bequeathed to me a noble name, a name that was respected in the arts and sciences of Ireland, and I had brought it low. I had dragged it through the mire, I had given it to brutes to be brutal with. My name had become a synonym for sin. With each new train that came into the station, the crowd would swell and the mockery grew. About this time, a man came in front of the crowd and he caught my eye, and he simply, he simply tipped his hat. And then he moved on. 
this quieted the crowd briefly. I, I think of all the gestures ever offered me, that was the kindest of all. A simple tip of the hat. People have gone to heaven for less. It is a debt I can never repay. Whenever philosophy fails me or my prayers turn to ashes in my mouth, I think of that gesture and it sustains me. It is a rose in the desert to me. It was a Christ-like act as Jesus always came to the aid of the outcast and the shunned. So here I sit in my cell in silence. There is only one season in prison, and that is the season of sorrow. Wordsworth said that suffering and sorrow have the nature of infinity. Now that I am here, I understand Wordsworth better than he understood it himself, and the light here, it creates a milieu that makes everything worse. It is always twilight in prison. Outside it might be beautiful and bright and blue, but the only light that comes through the dense, dingy glass above is gray. A long season of sorrow. That is why people in prison turn to Jesus, not because they are guilty, but because they live in sorrow. And wherever there is sorrow... There is holy ground. Dante said that sorrow remarries us to God. I hope so. The books have arrived. Here it is, my second year, and thanks to the intercession of friends, I have been moved to a prison that is less harsh, and books are allowed. At first I tried the prison library, but they only had penny dreadfuls, nothing appropriate for a man of my background. So they allowed me fifteen books, and this has made me happy because what brings greater joy than great books? What would you choose if you could have fifteen books and fifteen books only? Well, I have chosen Augustine's Confessions, Dante's Inferno, and this is the place to read Dante, books on French and German grammar, and my favorite, the New Testament in Greek. I like reading Jesus' words in Greek because I believe they are his words. I believe Jesus spoke Aramaic and Greek just as the Irish peasants were bilingual. I think the peasants of Jesus' day were as well. And so when I read him in Greek, I think I am hearing directly from him and not getting a translation of a translation. It is an enormously spiritual experience to read Jesus in Greek every morning. Everyone should do it. I am working on a poem. I have only brief impressions recorded, and I shall not finish it here, but I shall share a little of it. I have been appalled by the prison system. There are children here for stealing loaves of bread and old people, too, people here for debts they cannot pay, and people here because they are simply mad. So I have written a few verses to try to describe these horrors. I shall not finish it here in prison, because poetry written with emotion is bad poetry. But here is a little of it. The title will be The Ballad of Reading Jail. This, too, I know 
and wise it were, if each could know the same, that every prison that men build is built with bricks of shame, bound with bars, lest Christ should see how men their brothers maim. With bars they blur the gracious moon, and blind the goodly sun, and they do well to hide their hell. For in it things are done that son of God nor son of man ever should look upon. The vilest deeds, like poison weeds, bloom well in prison air. It is only what is good in man that wastes and withers there. Pale anguish keeps the heavy gate, and the warden is despair. For they starve the little frightened child till it weeps both day and night. And they scourge the weak and flog the fool, and they mock the old and gray. And some grow mad, and all grow bad, and none a word may say. And all men kill the thing they love. By all let this be heard. Some do it with a bitter look, some with a flattering word. The coward does it with a kiss, the brave man with a sword. After Oscar was released from prison, he was damaged goods, he was a pariah, and no one wanted to associate with him. He was persona non grata, a social leper. So he left England for France, where he lived the rest of his days in poverty, always trying to put some money together by selling the rights to his plays, which, it turns out, he sold multiple times to different people, but he got little, enough to pay a little rent and buy some wine. He was desperate and ill most of the time. He died of cerebral meningitis in a cheap hotel room in Paris at the age of 46. His last words are supposedly these, The wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. Either it goes, or I do. The wallpaper won. And from what I've seen of economic hotels in Paris, the wallpaper is probably still winning. Well, so as not to finish on a sad note, I'll let Oscar share his advice for life. He says, Writing is hard work. You have to commit entirely to the process. I once spent an entire morning reworking a draft. I added a comma. In the afternoon, after careful study, I removed it. People often ask what I think of other writers. Do not be too hard on English novelists. Realize that the books are largely written for the relaxation of the intellectually unemployed. I generally like Dickens, but he is sometimes so maudlin, so melodramatic. You must have a heart of stone to read The Death of Little Nell without laughing. Edgar Allan Poe, I genuinely love. He is a genius of rhythm. I think America would have produced more fine writers if the country had not been founded by George Washington, a serial truth-teller. Never telling a lie may be good for governing, but it does little for the imagination, which is essential to good writing. Britain's George Moore is so boring, I am surprised he has a book at all. He had completed his third book before he discovered English grammar, and then he announced it to the applause of the illiterates, and then he discovered writing had an architecture, sentences leading to paragraphs and paragraphs to chapters. This he announced from the rooftops to the applause of the journalists. I am afraid if he does not hurry, he will complete his career where most writers begin. George Meredith's style is all chaos interrupted by flashes of lightning. 
He has mastered everything but language. He is actually just a prose Browning, but then so is Browning. Browning used the medium of poetry to write prose, you see. George Shaw is truly brilliant, but he has no passion. He loves nothing. He doesn't even love himself. Of course, knowing him as I do, I understand his indifference. I want you to know that I say these harsh things with a sense of absolute sincerity. But do read. Read books worth rereading. A book not worth rereading is not a book worth reading the first time. Now, for some advice for good living, I have gotten a lot of good advice in my life, and I have never known what to do with it except to pass it on. It has never been much use to me personally. It is my opinion that you cannot really get the benefit of other people's experiences. You must get your own. That is why I believe that anything worth knowing cannot be taught. Live your own life. A young man told me recently that he believed one day he would smoke, but that when he did, he would smoke only in moderation, and I told him that that was the wrong attitude. I said, if you're going to do something, do it to excess. How else will you come to know it and understand it deeply and to understand it in relation to you? Rip the heart out of it and make it yours. Earn your own knowledge. Too many people never really live. They merely exist. Their lives are counterfeit. Their opinions are other people's opinions, their emotions are borrowed, and their intellect is a quotation. Socrates said, Know thyself. Our modern version of that should be this. Be thyself. Be yourself, yes. Everybody else is already taken. And do not worry about being strange or different. To be great is to be misunderstood. I have lived my life in terror that I would not be misunderstood. The one time that I tried to conform and to explain myself to the world, I got into trouble. Do not conform. The world has made its greatest progress through rebellion and disobedience. The great poet Yeats once told me that he thought it sad that a person had to die before his legend was established, and I said, why wait? Write your own legend. In this modern age of journalism and newspapers, you can be your own myth-maker. The facts and figures of your life matter very little. It is the narrative that you create for yourself. Write your own story and make it magnificent. Live the legend you create. You cannot wait for others to toot your horn. Toot your own. And if you do it often enough and beautifully enough, the world will believe. I think everyone should always be in love. That is why you should never marry. My views on marriage are well known, I believe. The definition of polygamy is one wife too many. The definition of monogamy is the same. The problem with marriage is that it is an unequal relationship. When a man marries, he gives the wife a little of himself, but his wife gives him all of herself. It is unequal from the beginning of the relationship, from the entire perception of love. A man hopes that he is the woman's first love. The woman hopes that she is the man's last romance. If you must marry, I say do not have a long engagement. Long engagements only serve to reveal character flaws. That should be reserved for the marriage itself. The Bible certainly warns us of this because the Bible itself begins with love in the Garden of Eden and ends with revelations. Still, I do believe in love, and you should always have love in your life. A life without love is like a sunless garden where all the flowers are dead. 
I am truly a romantic when it comes to love. You should not fall in love with someone because of cars or clothes or riches. You should fall in love because they sing a song only you can hear. I want to thank you for being a splendid audience. You have been insightful and smart and most talented. You have laughed in all the right places. I believe you have found this evening almost as charming as I have. And I know audiences. I have had brilliant plays go unappreciated because the audiences were such a failure. Thank you for your brilliance. And now let us finish with this toast. We are all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars.